Amid all of the concerns of a slowdown in the global economy, there is one industry telling a completely different story. On the right, we have Balenciaga. We've got Chloe here. Then on the left, we have Christian Dior. These were once considered among the most exclusive and expensive brands around, known for their handbags and coats priced in the thousands of dollars. We read a lot about how physical retail is dead, but actually in the luxury industry, it's not dead. It's more sophisticated than ever. This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keane. On this episode, we're looking at the 330 billion euro personal luxury industry and the one region responsible for a third of all sales. Harriet Agnew covers the French business world for the FT in Paris. I caught up with Harriet during a recent trip to Europe. And to understand how the luxury market is doing, she suggested we take a stroll down Avenue Montaigne, right by the Champs-Élysées. So Avenue Montaigne is in the 8th arrondissement, which is an area of Paris popular with both tourists and business people. There's lots of the smart palace hotels around here, which are a big draw for, for foreigners and for tourists. So, for example, just down the road we have the Plaza Athenée. We're not far from Le Bristol Hotel and not too far from the Ritz either. Um, so you do get a lot of foreigners who come and stay in these amazing hotels and they want to go shopping on Avenue Montaigne. On the right we have Balenciaga, which again is part of the caring group. They've had some very strong growth, particularly thanks to sales of sneakers. There's a big trend at the moment for luxury leisure wear, so things like sneakers are doing very well. We've got Chloe here on the left, which is part of the Richemont Group, which is the other big luxury conglomerate in Europe. And then further down on our right we have Chanel and Fendi, and of course the creative director here for many years at both brands was um, Karl Lagerfeld, who sadly died earlier this year. Our trip down Avenue Montaigne pretty quickly turns into a luxury history lesson. Then on the left we have Christian Dior. This is really the, the baby of Bernard Arnault. It's the company that he bought back in 1986 when it was part of a, an almost bankrupt textile group called Boussac. And Arno saw Dior and he saw this jewel in an otherwise almost bankrupt company and wanted to get his hands on it. He saw the brand value of it when he was in New York in the 80s and he said to a taxi driver, what do you know about France? And the taxi driver couldn't name the president of France, but he knew about Christian Dior. Anyway, so he, he bought Boussac and sold off most of the assets, but, but kept Dior. And really that's been the, the cornerstone with which he built his vast LVMH empire. So it really holds a, a special place in the Arno family's heart. And actually, at the moment, the Christian Dior store is about to move to the Champs-Élysées for several months while they do a massive store refurbishment. They're refurbishing a new flagship at the moment on Avenue Montaigne, which is going to be on many floors and is going to be this, what they're hoping for, a sort of incredible store experience when it finally opens. Harriet and I are taking our stroll on a Wednesday morning in June. We see more construction workers than we do Chanel-clad shoppers. That might be because it's about 10 a.m., but just like at Christian Dior, there are several storefronts on this elegant tree-lined block undergoing renovations. 
For the big luxury conglomerates, these shops, these brands, they're the main profit drivers. On our left, on the corner, we have Gucci, which is really the crown jewel for caring. Now, it's 20 years since there was a takeover battle for Gucci, which riveted corporate France and, and really set the stage for the luxury industry as we know it today. So LVMH's Bernard Arnault was keen to buy Gucci, but in the end, he lost out in a battle to François Pinault. Now, at the time, François Pinault was running a, a company called PPR, a conglomerate. It's since rebranded as Caring, but really the acquisition of Gucci Group was what he used as the cornerstone to build his luxury empire. And that now includes things like Saint Laurent, Balenciaga. The acquisition of Gucci by um, Pinot really set up the rivalry that we know now between these two great luxury tycoons in Paris, the Pinot family and the Arnaud family. I think one of the things that's really interesting is that you see the, the big brands, the big brands that you see in the glossy magazines. Yeah. We've got Louis Vuitton and Gucci and Dior, but actually all of these brands are more or less owned by one of three big luxury conglomerates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, Europe has really pioneered this model of a luxury conglomerate. You see it with LVMH, which was the first to do it. You see it with Caring and with Richemont. And really the, the thinking here is that by bringing a whole load of brands under one roof, you can give creative autonomy to the designers, but at the same time they can benefit from economies of scale. And one of the things that Bernard Arnault always says is he felt like this multi-brand structure was the best way to attract talent. Because if you can go and work in a group and you can start for a leather goods company and then end up working for a scent company and then after that work in, in makeup or in travel retail or in ready-to-wear, it's quite an appealing proposition for young hires. Do you are for children? Oh, yeah, 22. Mm. It's actually yeah. quite unassuming. Yeah. Exactly. About three quarters of our way down the block, we stop in front of 22 Avenue Montaigne. It's a rather unassuming office building. It's sleek and nearly unmarked. In fact, Harriet has to point out the small LVMH lettering below um, the street so number. On our left, we have the um, LVMH headquarters, which is, uh, which is where it all happens. Um, and next this is the home of Bernard Arnault's empire. And unsurprisingly, right next door, there's a sprawling Louis Vuitton store. And I can't help but notice a big mark on the glass of the front window. So you can see on the left, the window of Louis Vuitton has actually been smashed. Now, this was part of the Gilets Jaunes protesters who, who would have done that in the past few months. I think Avenue Montaigne wasn't quite as badly damaged as Rufeuburg Saint-Honoré, which is where the Elysee Palace is. And in December, a couple of weeks before Christmas, I was there on a very rainy Saturday, full of protesters and full of violence. And I watched Chanel being smashed up by the Gilets Jaunes. So they really, they smashed all of the buildings, they ran inside, they looted the store, and the police were fairly powerless to do anything. So. There's a Louis Vuitton store here, but actually the new flagship of Louis Vuitton, which opened fairly recently, is on Place Vendôme. And it really shows how the brands are investing in their stores and making sure that their stores are really a showcase for everything that they're doing. We read a lot about how physical retail is dead, but actually in the luxury industry, it's not dead. It's more sophisticated than ever, and it's more important than ever in order to attract clients like the best sort of marketing. Yeah, exactly. And luxury is all about selling a dream. And you don't sell a dream on the internet. 
People want to come in, they want to touch the product, they want to hear the stories, they want to learn about the history and where it came from. What I love about this street is I think it just encapsulates the history of the luxury industry over the past four decades. It's full of stories of the, of the designers, of the owners, of the battle for control of these brands and the battle to win hearts and minds of consumers. And this is a battle these conglomerates are pretty handily winning. In the second quarter of this year, sales at Hermes and at LVMH beat market expectations. LVMH executives said sales from Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior in particular were, quote, outstanding. Over at Caring, where Gucci amounts for more than half of revenue, sales were hit by performance in Japan and in the U.S. But all of the luxury groups pointed to one main market, a place that continues to account for the bulk of sales growth. I spoke with Harriet about this back in the FT's bureau. The largest market, the most important market for luxury goods is still China. So Chinese buyers account for one in three sales globally, and they remain the driving force of the luxury industry. Um, the past few decades have seen this phenomenal period of, of globalization and of demographic changes in China. And so as a result, they've had this, this huge spending power and a lot of that money has gone into luxury goods. I think the biggest change that we're seeing in the Chinese market is related to where they're buying luxury goods. So there used to be a big price differential between China and Europe, um, which meant that the Chinese buyers would travel to Europe in order to snap up luxury items. But brands have been working to close this price gap. There's also been some security and terrorist concerns around traveling to Europe. And we've seen a crackdown by the Chinese authorities on this practice known as Daigu, which means buy on behalf. And this is where personal shoppers would buy luxury goods overseas and then return home to sell them in China. As Harriet says, these Daigu shoppers would go to Europe and in some cases the U.S. and they'd go to some of the most popular brands, stores like Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and they would snap up as many products as they could only to take them back to China and sell them for a profit. That's because the price differential between goods sold in mainland China and goods sold in Europe, at least at the time, was so vast. But now that's changed. So really all of this means that there's a continuing repatriation of sales to mainland China, which is something that all the big groups reported in their in their latest results. Um, and just to get a sense of the scale of this, in 2015, around three quarters of sales happened outside China. And HSBC expects that this will be split half-half this year or next year. And this year, the rate of sales in mainland China is expected to grow twice as fast as the global average, which is 6%. When you think about it, every day in China, there are two new billionaires. That's Robert Burke of Robert Burke Associates, which is a fashion retail consultancy in New York. He works on growth strategy for a number of luxury brands, and he's been paying particularly close attention to the role of the Chinese shopper. When they polled these these billionaires of the luxury consumer in China, 52% of them said that they plan on spending more on luxury. So that's a pretty pretty major green light. That's who your customer is. Yeah, maybe it's time to open a few more stores. Yeah. Um, I so, caught up with Robert back in New York and asked him whether this meant that the product offerings had changed. Well, I think they're catering it for um, a new customer and an aspirational customer. And it's not just for China. I think it's really uh, a look at how do you introduce the consumer to the brand. And 
and the first purchase um, a consumer may make will probably not be a $4,000 handbag or a, or a $3,000 jacket. So the brands have realized that they need to have these products, small leather goods in a variety of ways, accessories in a variety of ways. And it used to be that it was taboo if you had these products. Um, today, it's it's recognized as, you know, if you have a 400 or a $500 item and you're a luxury brand, that's there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's that's a good thing because that may be the entry level for this consumer. It doesn't mean that the consumer, that you're going to harm the brand, though, today. In other words, those Balenciaga sneakers that Harriet mentioned earlier, they're about $900 U.S. So, yes, that is a lot of money for sneakers. But if you'll bear with me for a second, in terms of getting on the luxury goods ladder, it's not quite a $10,000 handbag. The reality today is the customer is very well informed and they know exactly what they want and they're completely comfortable mixing price points. And so the brands have realized that and as opposed to them going to Nike um, for a special edition, then we see that the brands want to offer their own special edition and it's worked. How has social media uh, played a role in this. Social media has been everything. Um, <laughs> so it's not just it's just not not just a bit it's part. Not it is just everything. a little role. And when I say social media, I also am am going into um, how the the brands communicate with with and particularly with Asia. Um, you know whether it's WeChat or or um, TikTok or whatever it may be. Uh, the little red book, which is um, Chinese China's Instagram alternative. So what has happened is, is, you know, we as, as, as Westerners can sometimes be very arrogant that um, the, custo- the consumer should understand us. Mm-hmm. And the brands have realized today that have been successful that, no, you, you have to understand the Chinese customer and you have to market for them and you have to communicate the way they want to communicate. And the brands that have done that, and certainly the major brand groups like the Carings and the, and the um, LVMHs and um, Richemont have been highly successful because of that. But it's, um, it's, it's realized that the world doesn't revolve around um, Europe and New America. York City. Yeah. <laughs> and as, New much York as, City. as much as me might like to think that sometimes. Um, so if these brands are getting in with their would-be shoppers on social media, I wonder what this means for getting actual shoppers into actual retail stores. One of the things we spoke of was how the sort of like the demise of the brick and mortar store is the narrative across most of retail. But for the luxury story, it's just, it's completely different. So I think particularly in retail, we we hear and read a lot about um, the demise of the physical store. But in luxury, it's quite the opposite. Um, luxury is all about selling a dream and people want to, they want to smell the leather of the Birkin bag. They want to, they want to feel the softness of the Laura Piana cashmere. They want to experience all of this firsthand. And so, you know, while we've moved away from this like indiscriminate opening of stores, particularly in Asia that we saw during the 90s and noughties, right now brands are investing a lot of money in renovating the stores and making them a place where the consumers can experience the brand, can learn about the brand. Here's Robert again. You see what's happened in this changing tide of the brands have become so strong on their own that they're not dependent on the um, department stores solely. Now, they'll be there, but they don't have to 
operate in the same sort of way. And that's why you see concessions happening at a rate that we've never seen, which means they basically run the business inside of the department store. And then their own store openings have, um, uh, you know, many of them, if you look at the history of, of brands having five or six stores in America and now have 25 stores, and then you look at what they're going to have globally, it's, it's, it's impressive. So they're setting up the network so that they can be in direct contact with a customer. Um, it's, a big, it's a big change from where it was. And that's where you're seeing the growth for these luxury brands. Um, they have realized that if they can control their image and also control their markdowns and their sale cadence, and Prada came out today saying how much their earnings had come up um, because they, would, they refused to participate in sales, sales with department stores or markdowns. Uh, same thing that Gucci did a year and a half ago and it pays off. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Robert and to Harriet is because while LVMH and Caring and Richemont continue to point to Asia, and specifically to China for sales growth, I can't help but take note of the other main economic headlines out of China in recent months and specifically in recent days, mounting trade tensions, slowing growth, I wanted to square these two ideas. The luxury sector of uh, luxury goods are not going to slow down. And and I don't say that in an arrogant way. And, you know, when we look at just some of the top line economics, you know, um, China posted its weakest economic figures um, uh, in decades. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing some of the highest sales in China of luxury goods. So... I know that doesn't in many ways make sense, but for the high luxury brands, for the for the customer that's buying these products because they want to be distinguished socially, there's not going to be a slowdown. And here's Harriet again. If you speak to the the top luxury goods brands, I think they are sure there'll be some there'll be some bumps on the way in the short term, particularly as we come out of this prolonged period of monetary easing. But I think longer term, they feel like the demographic trends that have driven this growth over the past 30, 40 years are still there. Back out on Avenue Montaigne, I asked Harriet to look into the future and tell me where several years from now the next round of growth just might come from. So I think in the past few decades, Thanks to globalization, we've seen what we would call the democratization of luxury. So it moved from something that was known for things like couture, for very expensive handbags, for, for craftsmanship, which all of this still exists. But if you think of it like a, a pyramid structure, you have the very expensive haute couture and leather handbags at the top. But then you have all the entry-level products on the bottom that, that allow normal people to, to get a bit of the magic, to, to get a bit of the dream. So that might be a Chanel lipstick or a, a silk scarf from Hermes that sells for 300 euros. Or it might be a bottle of scent. So I think really the next chapter for the luxury industry is this idea of experiential luxury. People are almost saturated with owning things. They want to experience things and they want to experience things that others can't. They want to get access to, to things that others haven't been able to. So that's why we saw this big acquisition in December by LVMH Belmont, 
which is a travel and hospitality group that owns everything from the Orient Express, which is a sort of magical historic train ride that takes you from Paris to Venice, to the Hotel Cipriani in Venice. So I think this is going to be a crucial area that we see groups trying to develop. You can read much more on the luxury market at FT.com. Harriet has, in fact, recently had lunch with LVMH patriarch Bernard Arnault, and you can read that online as well. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode, or if there's anything you'd like us to cover in a future episode, just email me at behindthemoney at FT.com, or you can tweet me at Amy P. Keene. That's A-I-M-E-E-P-K-E-A-N-E. And if the music moves you and you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. It really does help others find out about us. Thanks to our intern, Eileen Rodriguez, for her help transcribing hours and hours of tape, and to Laura Sim for her help producing this episode. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. This is Lila Raptopoulos. I'm the co-host of a new podcast from the Financial Times called Culture Call. From the 13th of August, we're going to be dropping into your podcast feeds every other Tuesday, bringing you encounters with those who are shifting culture around the world. We'll have lively discussions on how the social changes we're seeing are depicted in books, art, music, on screen and online. And we'll give you a glimpse behind the scenes of the best of the FT's life and arts journalism. You can find the podcast in all the usual places, like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Acast, when Culture Call drops on Tuesday, August 13th.